2: Hey there, and welcome to the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. I'm your host, Annika. I'm hosting this podcast because I want to learn everything that I possibly can about the sailing lifestyle, specifically about becoming a liverboard cruiser. I do this by talking to liverboard sailors as well as industry experts and find out all the essentials about boat shopping and selection, the costs of full-time sailing, and exactly how people made their dream a reality. Join me and you will get real-life advice, practical tips, and maybe you'll even avoid making some costly mistakes. After listening to these truly inspirational and hugely entertaining stories, you and I will be better prepared to start our sailing adventures. Today my guests are Corey and Chris from SV Constellation, who live on their boat in the Seattle area because they chose life on water over the traditional path. We talk quite a bit about all things finance-related, like buying a boat when you don't have a house to sell, convincing banks to give out sizable loan to young professionals. And Corey and Chris also share their experience of buying a sailboat thousands of miles away from home. And of course, since they are liveaboards in the Pacific Northwest, we do talk about surviving winters on board. So lots of good stuff in this interview. So let's just get to it. Corey and Chris, welcome to the show. Why don't we get started by you guys introducing
3: yourselves? Yeah, totally. So I'm Corey. Uh, this is my partner, Chris, and uh, we live full time on our sailboat here in Seattle, Washington. And we live—we've been living aboard for two years now. Mm-hmm. We just hit that milestone last month, so it's been uh, it's been a great time. We made it through two full winters, so that feels like a milestone.
1: <laughs> sure does around here, yeah.
3: Yeah, <laughs> um, but we've so we've been living aboard.
1: Yeah, living aboard, but still working here uh, in Seattle. So yeah. we're just doing uh, kind of local cruising uh, while we still you know maintain our jobs and uh, kind of explore everything we can about the Pacific Northwest.
2: Yeah, that's a two year and two winter. Uh, milestone is definitely an achievement. So <laughs> well done on that one.
3: <laughs> yes, it is. Do you want to a little bit about our boat?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's a sailboat and uh, it's a sloop rig sailboat that's a uh, center cockpit. Uh, we chose a center cockpit uh, sailboat uh, mainly because it gives you a larger aft cabin. So you just have a little uh, bigger bed to sleep in the back. And also, when you're just underway in the cockpit, it's a little more sea kindly since you're not at the stern. You don't have as much vertical motion back there. Uh, we really liked the layout that it, it gave us. So, uh, we went center cockpit also has a separated stall shower, which if you're living aboard, uh, not even to kind of like wipe up after you shower every time.
3: That was uh, a big deal. <laughs> yeah,
1: is definitely a great thing. <laughs> you know, we also, um, it has pretty tall ceilings in the boat, um, which helps them six four. So walking through the boat is nice. Don't to be a uh, crane neck everywhere you go. And, uh, yeah, it's. It uh, has teak decks on the outside, which was a new thing for us. So we got a little work on uh, some, some woodworking and everything like that, too. One of the unique things about this boat, it's a Freedom. It's a Freedom 45 uh, center cockpit in 1991. Um, but Freedoms are unique because they have a freestanding carbon fiber mast. So we've done away with all the stays. Uh, we don't have the backstay or, or side stays, spreaders, anything like that. Um, there is a four stay on the bow, but it's strictly just to hang on your head sail.
2: Oh, wow, that's really unique.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's always people look at it and kind of what is this boat, or you know what's going on with the rig. And sometimes we joke and say oh, it's not done yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's it's a it's a great design that we've actually uh, really come to to like. But we're first very uh, kind of shied away from it because we didn't really understand it ourselves.
3: Yeah, yeah. I
2: bet that is to get takes some getting used to for sure when it says uh, something that different. But uh, it's great to hear that those things are even out there. I think you guys are the only ones that I've seen in the online world that have that. So that's that's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, definitely. Our boat name is Constellation. So when we were naming the boat, or when we first got it, coming up with the name, uh, we thought wow, isn't it so great to look up at the stars and not have any of the rigging in the way. So we felt great about the name that we landed on with Constellation. And it just uh, felt fitting (laughs) with this type of boat.
2: (laughs) So I know you guys from Instagram and also from your blog, Constellation Sailing. And I just love seeing all the beautiful Pacific Northwest scenery and reading all the boat life stories. But tell me, why have you chosen to live on a sailboat?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So for us, we were, we've been together for quite a while now. We're actually, we're getting married next month. So, um, that's coming up soon, but we were at the point we were living together and we were like, okay, what's the next thing? Um, we both were sailors before we, uh, got together. And so it's always been something that we've shared and enjoyed doing together. And we we're thinking, okay, is the next step buy a condo? I don't know, that doesn't feel like the right thing for us. And then we started exploring, well, what if we lived on a boat here in Seattle? And that just felt so right for both of us. So the more that we looked into it, we just started to fall more in love with the idea. And then, you know, we started watching people on YouTube as well. I mean, there are so many people out there who are living this cruising lifestyle and living aboard full time. And so our first idea of living aboard really turned into two big goals of traveling more on our boat so that kind of started to dictate the idea and for us what that lifestyle could look like so yeah that was kind of the big drivers we wanted something a little different than the traditional pathway of buy a house buy a condo yeah live life a little more on the water
2: (laughs) yeah that sounds really good and that i can definitely relate to all of that i'm exactly in the same boat pardon the pun but uh Buying a condo or a house just doesn't seem quite right. And I also can't decide on a location. I couldn't even pick a continent at this point. Would I live in permanently in North America or Europe? So uh sailboats and living on one and cruising on one really takes a lot of boxes for me <laughs> as well. So I'm also curious to hear about everyone's timeline for realizing their dream and plan to live on a sailboat. Uh, what was your timeline for this? Like how long were you thinking this idea over and, uh, how long did it take you to actually make it a reality?
1: Well, I would um, grown up cruising on my, uh, family's boats. And so we'd usually go up cruising in the summers and everything like that. And I really loved, I loved that. That was like the best time of life I was going to do that. And so one of the things that when Corey and I got together, I got to bring her on one of those trips with the family. So we went on the family sailboat, we went up cruising and Corey and I really, in, you know, in love with that, uh, that cruising lifestyle It's like, you know, we, we could really do, we could do this. We could. We could get our boat. We could go ahead and, and try and do the same sort of cruising, and we would do it our own style, our own little twist on it. We'd go to different places, um, you know, different itineraries where we want to go. And so we kind of went down that path, and and that was kind of a, one summer. And then by that fall, we we pretty much settled on, okay, let's get a boat, but let's get one in mind for doing something more than just a few weeks or a month or anything like that. Let's try and let's try and take the next step because we want to do. We knew we want to do a lot of traveling. We knew we want to see a lot of the world. So let's go ahead and make sure the boat that we get is capable to do that. And so it only took about six months for us to go, wow, this is really great. Okay, now we're really searching for this perfect boat.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty quick timeline. That's awesome. And I love always hearing about everybody's sort of the light bulb moment, like, oh, hang on, we could do this. (laughs) It's just the best stories.
3: (laughs) We definitely had a couple of moments, too. Our process evolved. So we had the idea, we thought, okay, here's what our budget could probably be started looking at boats. We hadn't really shared it with anyone yet that this is what we were thinking of doing. And it didn't take long in our initial search for a boat to realize that we really needed to up our budget to find something that would be really comfortable for what we were looking for.
1: Absolutely. (laughs)
3: Both for just getting through a winter, living here in the Pacific Northwest and feeling comfortable and like it's something that we wouldn't, not like constant camping type of feel, right? (laughs) Um, But then also a boat that would be sturdy enough or uh that we would trust enough for crossing oceans eventually.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I actually wanted to talk about that a little bit uh about the sort of, you know, you had an idea for a budget and you had an idea for a what kind of boat you want and then you kind of realized that um actually these two don't really match. <laughs> and uh I I read on your blog that uh you, you know you talked about your plans to buy a boat in the Seattle area for a certain amount and then you realized well Seattle area is rather limited, and there wasn't going to be enough the kind of posts that you were after. And then you opted to sort of widen your search, right? And uh, get financing to increase the budget. So can you tell a little bit more about this experience? Because I actually found your blog post really, really helpful for myself.
3: Good. <laughs> That's great. Well, I can share a little bit about what where we started, at least. So um just to give you a couple of ballpark numbers and stuff too so we started with an initial budget of forty thousand dollars thinking that seems pretty significant we should be able to find a really comfortable boat for that well in the seattle market where boats are quite a bit more expensive um for whatever reason i mean not manufactured here as often or uh transport costs or it's harder to sail here so there are just fewer boats um so the market looked a lot different And the boats that we were seeing for $40,000 were really run down. We would need to reef, well, for the size that we were looking at, which was over 40 feet. And we realized pretty quickly we would spend just as much doing a refit of a boat that was coming in that condition in order to get it in a space that would feel good. So from there... We decided to up things and look a little further.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a way to look further. You can can look for something that's on your coastline and look about sailing it. And you can also look into something that's on the opposite coast that you are potentially for trucking it. But then you have, you know, say $10,000 to truck a boat from the opposite side of the coastline. So uh, boats were definitely cheaper on the East Coast than they were on the West Coast. A lot of people, because they like to sail in the Caribbean and when they're done with the boat, they'll leave it there. Same thing with Mexico, when they're kind of done with the boat, they leave it there in California. So, you know, the boats are just a little bit cheaper down south. And so we extended our range and didn't want to truck a boat because we really just didn't have the way to, uh, we couldn't finance shipping a boat, but we could finance purchasing a boat. And so we knew, okay, we had to do something that's on the West Coast. And so that brought us down to California, where we actually found um, uh, this boat that we're looking at.
3: Yeah, before we extended down to California, we first looked into B.C. as well, so in mm-hmm. British Columbia uh we traveled up to sydney we looked at a couple of boats there taking ferries to go see what our options were we saw some great boats up there um more race oriented boats so
1: racer cruiser
3: again not quite what we were looking for for the day-to-day living on a boat yeah and this boat that we found down in santa barbara this was the only one that we traveled so far to see because we had we'd seen it a couple of times already on the online listings and we started to feel pretty good that we had exhausted all of our options here. So Santa Barbara was the winner when we found Constellation and we sailed her up the coast when we got her too. So that was the other consideration is if we buy a boat that's not local, we have to figure out how we can Mm -hmm. get it home.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely noticing a lot of the same challenges that I'm seeing and I'm not even seriously shopping yet, but I would Sale in BC area. And indeed, the one the to and quality of boats is just not exactly what I would be looking for. And then you see California is like, well, everything's there. <laughs> Great selections there. But, you know, Seattle and California, there's still quite a bit of a distance. So how was the buying process or the whole shopping process when you did it so far from home? Like, did you go see, you said you just saw this one boat in California or
1: yeah. We flew down to, to, uh, to go visit the boat so we could actually see it and kind of do our own survey of the boat, uh, to make sure it's something that we wanted. And so we just flew down for this one. We you know, flew into LA, we got a rental car, we drove to Santa Barbara, uh, spent the time looking at it and made sure this is something that we're very serious about, but we, we didn't walk away from the boat saying, okay, we have to purchase it. We walked away saying, okay, we have to put an offer on because we really can't, uh, we can't pay for something as expensive. So there's always that game too. But, um, we we put an offer on when we were still at the airport <laughs> leaving. We were pretty set. We wanted the boat.
3: <laughs> I think we were only in California for 24 hours yeah. or less than 24 hours. We flew down to LA, drove to Santa Barbara, looked at the boat, looked at each other, and said, "This is it." This is it. <laughs> By the time, yeah, but it was a little bit more expensive than we were really willing to pay. So we came in with a really low offer when we were sitting in the airport. We got our beer at the little cafe there, and we thought, "Okay, are we doing this thing?" And then yeah, I mean, we put in an offer 30% less than what the listing price was. I think it's valuable for people to know what might be standard or might be possible Mm -hmm. to do an offer that's pretty significantly different from what the listing price is. And they took it. (laughs) So that was great.
2: (laughs) That's a really good tip. Because for the longest time, I did not realize this at all. I thought what's there is what you pay. And then I started reading and was like, oh, you make an offer and you don't Pay that amount. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely a good tip. And uh, yeah, that was quite quite a bit lower uh, than what the asking price was. So that was great. And had you cleared everything like with your bank before, like they were sort of ready to go, waiting for a call, like yep, we're ready to buy now.
3: <laughs> we did. I'm trying to recall what that order of events really looked like. We did first have some conversations with a couple of banks and we realized that we weren't getting approved for even half the amount of what we were looking for, for our budget. That was a surprise to us. I mean, it was very much a chicken and the egg kind of situation too, where they said, well, you haven't had a loan of that amount before, so we can't give you a loan of that amount We thought, well, how could we, how could we fix that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was a challenge, but then we did, we came across one bank finally who they worked with us great. And we got approved for, an amount i think up to a hundred thousand dollars was our pre-approval so long as the boat met a certain type of criteria couldn't be too old i think it was 30 years 30 years yeah was the cutoff, which was close i mean now our boat is 30 years old so it, <laughs> I mean, we, we barely squeaked in there um 30 years old and it had to have a survey and it couldn't be wood <laughs> Couldn't be a wooden boat. So we knew that in mind when we were going into making this offer on the boat that we had, a, we had a cap for what we would be approved for financing and we had to take sales tax into account as well. So that played a bit into our equation. And then by the time that we put the offer down, then we went through the broker, we reached out to our bank. We said, okay, we have an offer on the table. They started to prepare it with us and then also worked with the broker as we were getting the payment together.
2: Yeah, that's super interesting to hear. And uh, I would definitely recommend for anyone who's listening to go read your blog, uh, constellationsailing.com because there are some really good tips. And in it, you recommend to start talking to banks early and... uh, I'm not supposed really shopping, but I still went and talked to my bank because I'm excited. <laughs> and uh, they were very grateful that I came in that early. They're like, oh, it's so good that you're looking. And I kind of said like, oh, when we're well, looking at eight months from now, and it's like, oh, that's great. That's the perfect time to come talk to us. I was like, really?
0: <laughs> like, but I'm not
2: like applying for a loan now. But they were really helpful in giving advice on how to organize your finances so that the last few months look really nice for when they're putting the offer into whatever like lending people institutions uh so they they gave a lot of good advice there so uh thank you because that definitely came from from you that tip
3: good so glad that was helpful
2: (laughs) so yeah so you got your finances sorted you put in the offer it was accepted um a few steps later you are boat owners but you're in california or the boat is in california and you need to be in washington and it's December and um, I don't know a whole ton about sailing in that area yet, but I don't think it's the optimal time to go up the coast. So uh,
1: no. <laughs>
2: what was that experience like?
1: Well, we had to, we had a couple days to go prepare the boat. We flew in a few days early just to uh, kind of run through a couple of the systems. Uh, you know, we, we would uh, change the engine oil. We would change up, you know, fuel filters. We went and bought some jerry cans to make sure we had enough fuel range to go up the coast. Um, we knew we were going to stop and uh, halfway along the way, we did Santa Barbara up to San Francisco and then San Francisco up to Anacortes, Washington. And so we kind of had a second leg to stop in there. Um, but it was the December along the U S Pacific is, is pretty nasty. <laughs> Most people don't go. Uh, we've definitely done deliveries up the coast in the summer, but that's going to be June and July. It's kind of the time you want to really do that. So we knew we had to really find our weather window. So we knew we wanted to come down and, try and fly and do this and then time these weather windows that we'd see but it'd be very very short just a matter of days uh you'd have of like whether that wouldn't be terrible out there um so we we got the boat all prepped and then saw our weather window up here and we uh we went for it
3: It all the timing worked out surprisingly well for us so part of that was just the luck of the weather um as we were getting closer to the closing of the sale of the boat. So it took us an entire month from the time that we put down an offer and then we had signed the paperwork and the boat was ours. Mm -hmm. And leading up to the last couple of weeks, we were constantly looking at the weather predictions, saying, wow, we really don't want to keep this boat down in Santa Barbara over the winter, or even for a couple of weeks, like the marina costs there are through the roof. Um, If we can make this work and get it here and home as soon as possible, then that would be great. So, we flew down the day before or it was like midnight or something before the sale of the boat was totally closed. And the previous owners were really wonderful and let us just stay on the boat. And um, they said, it's basically yours at this point. Yeah. Um, so we flew down and like Chris said, we spent a couple of days getting things prepped, but we had seen the weather just lining up perfectly for us. We knew it would take about seven days to sail from Santa Barbara up to Anacortes, Washington. And we thought, okay, let's just, let's do this. We booked our plane tickets just a couple of days in advance. Um, so that was definitely a cost, but we were ready for needing to pull that trigger pretty quickly. And after the couple of days of prep, then we pushed off and we took a couple of friends with us who also had some sailing experience to have extra night watch people to be with us so we could do rotations. And we did, we sailed motor sailed really. So we, we we were on a tight timeline. So we didn't just, uh, turn the motor off, we needed to keep going. But we did uh, two people awake and two people asleep each time throughout the night so that we could just keep going. And it worked out quite well. We did a crew swap once we were in San Francisco where we also uh, got more fuel. And leaving San Francisco on our way back to Anacortes, we had a couple of engine problems. So we made a, an emergency ditch into Humboldt Bay, California which we were super lucky was open because during that time of year, typically the small towns that are up along the coast are closed because the river bars get so dangerous to cross because of this well uh, that you can't can't come in there. So it worked out well for us.
2: (laughs) So normally, is there um, a lot of um, sort of little ports that you can tuck in so you can kind of be rather relatively close to the coast and then you can kind of check in somewhere inland or uh, to the coast if you need to? Or is it kind of longer stretches out and about?
1: They they call the stretch the ghost coast, because there's really, uh there's really not a lot to pop into. Uh, that's one of the hard uh, challenges about this, where if you're on the east coast or, or further south and where you are, or something like that, you'd have uh, many spots to go into. But um, say a harbor, even if it's closed or open, are, are going to be a couple hundred miles apart. Um, so there really wasn't uh, a lot of places to really pop into for us. So we we kind of knew, okay, from San Francisco, there's there's Crescent City, there's going to be like Grays Harbor, uh, eventually like Nia Bay, uh, but there just wasn't a lot of places to go uh, into for us. So we, we, we knew we had to do long stretches at a time. That's so we, we took on some extra diesel and knew we were kind of in it for the long haul. Uh, but that weather window definitely um, was very small.
2: <laughs> yeah, so you really have to watch the windows and then with the weather that you're I guess dealt with yeah along the way because nowhere else to go but forward
0: yep
3: yeah one thing or one reason why we also decided to do longer periods of time of sailing for this trip was if you stay further off the coast then you can avoid a lot of the current and debris line that's closer to the coast so by staying what 15 to 20 miles offshore we knew that sailing through the night was going to be uh, less dangerous because there's less to run into out there. So that's one benefit too. then rather than doing some closer to Mm -hmm. closer to shore hops.
1: The first five miles, there's a lot of logs and it's it's something you just don't want to encounter at night for your first time on the boat.
3: No, definitely
2: not on a new boat or a new to you boat that you don't know super well yet. And yeah, new
0: waters too. So no, definitely not.
2: So when you uh, eventually got to Seattle, did you move straight onto the boat and uh, you became liverboards, or you waited a while?
1: We waited a while. We actually the first thing we did is we we actually hauled the boat out. Um, we hauled the boat out because we have a pretty good laundry list of things that we wanted to uh, to change on the boat from when what we knew before we actually got it, and also a fair amount of things that we want to repair and change after doing our trip up the coast as sort of a sea trial. Uh, so we had about six months. We had the boat hauled out for for the winter and in um, early spring. And we just took care of everything, including um, doing a new um, bottom paint and stuff like that too. while the boat was hauled out, but you know, we, we launched um, March. We launched the first week of March, um, put the boat back in the water. And then uh, we didn't move on right away. We took a little bit of time to uh, kind of move out of the apartment that we're in, do a couple of little day sale or weekend sales on the boat. And uh, kind of get comfortable on it first and make sure that all the systems were working. Just because it's a lot easier to work on the boat when you're not living on the boat.
3: We did a lot of interior, so in addition to fixing anything that broke during our trip up the coast, or just the systems for the sailing systems that we wanted to upgrade, we also did a lot of work to the interior of the boat to get it comfortable for living aboard. That we knew we we just wouldn't be able to do uh, while we were also physically there. So big things like taking out all of the headliner in the boat the ceiling material was all, uh, saturated and moldy and it just wasn't stank. So it wasn't going to be something that we wanted to be exposing ourselves to Mm -hmm. for very long. Um, and then the other not fun, but necessary projects, like replacing all of the sanitation hosing, which also smelled really bad.
1: A lot of painting of the interior, the white spaces. Painting. You know, that's mm-hmm. the way it's, it was all clean and fresh for us kind of moving into it before we uh, really started.
2: Did you, I'm, I'm curious to hear about the liveaboard situation in Seattle area. I know uh, north of the border in sort of BC area is quite tricky from what I un- understand. There aren't that many marinas that do you offer liveaboards. Uh so how is it in in that area? Just not that far south.
3: It's also really competitive to find a live aboard spot here in Seattle and even in the entire Puget Sound area down in Washington. Definitely recommend getting on wait lists at marinas sooner than later. Right yeah. now, the most popular marina to live aboard at in Seattle is uh, quoting eight years for people to be on a waitlist, which is just Hard to reckon with.
1: <laughs> yeah, we actually had gotten on that wait list before we actually had got a boat. We kind of got on, we wanted, you know, the two kind of size range for the docks. We kind of got on that wait list. And at the time it was only like a two to two and a half year wait list. And, you know, it's been that time and we still have We still got don't a have a spot there. <laughs>
3: We're not going to get one. Yeah. <laughs> so what we ended up doing is we scoured Craigslist and anything that was a personal classifieds looking for a liveaboard spot. There are definitely other marinas that offer live aboard a small percentage often. So there's a restriction for something like 10% of the slips within a marina are allowed to be live aboard slips. So some private marinas decide just not to participate in that at all and not have to deal with the fuss of it. So we had the best luck by finding people who owned their own private slip and wanted to rent it out to people. Uh, Anything that's privately owned is... They can do what they will with it so living aboard was no problem and we got lucky by finding a sublet at elliott bay marina in seattle so it's a great marina still where we are and there's a few that were privately owned by a condo association and it was through them and just a private family that we rented their slip so that worked out but finding someone um directly was definitely the move rather than going through a marina
2: yeah, for sure. I can imagine there's a lot of hurdles to jump through there for sure. So you kind of eased into the Liverpool life, uh, but once you got to it, and now now you've been in Liverpool for what, a couple of years?
3: Mm-hmm. Two years now. <laughs> so
2: what have been some of the surprises, if any, um, or has it sort of met your expectations either in a, in a positive way or uh, has there been any uh, negative
1: surprises or
2: anything like that that have come up?
3: I'll just start by saying it is just as good as expected.
1: If not better. If not better. Yeah, if not better. I wouldn't shy away from it or tell anyone to shy away from it. It's actually, it's a great experience that uh, a lot of the concerns that probably people would have aren't as warranted as they they really should be there. Uh, It's a little bit easier to do once you get on and kind of get on the boat.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I will say we went into this definitely with our eyes open, um, given that we had some pretty good experience already. Uh, cruising this area and plenty of sailing experience before that. So we knew what to expect and, you know, the just realities of living in a small space or what it would mean to have to work on the boat, maintain the boat. That's definitely one of the bigger lifts that doesn't come from, you know, living in an apartment or uh, a land home. Sure, there's housework, but something about a boat, everything takes a little bit longer to work on. And uh, let's see, what would a surprise be?
1: Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi is
3: harder than you would expect.
1: Yeah, unlike being able to just kind of plug a router you buy from, you know, some store into the wall or something like that. You know, boom, you have Wi-Fi. It's a little more tricky here, where you know we set up Wi-Fi boosters to kind of grab signal from onshore and everything like that. And then we have a router in the boat, we can rebroadcast that signal, uh, for instance. So if we go anchor somewhere, sometimes we can anchor and grab. Wi-Fi from a marina or uh, Wi-Fi from some land-based station or something like that. We're not able to just kind of hardwire plug-in as easy as um, uh, you'd normally think. So that was kind of one thing that definitely um, was just a little bit more tricky. You have to do a little bit of that to to stay connected.
3: And now that we have it figured out, I mean, it's great. I I work full-time remotely right now and have been for the past year because of the pandemic. So having really strong Wi-Fi was... Uh, a concern for me because that's just needing to maintain that lifestyle for now. And once we have the system set up, I mean, it's working really great for us. So just takes a little extra thought ahead of time.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's great to hear. And I actually wanted to ask about you guys about uh, working from a boat. Um, If you don't mind sharing, uh, what do you guys do for a living that you can do from a sailboat?
3: Well, I personally, so we're both working full-time still in Seattle. Uh, I work for a consulting firm as a communications and stakeholder engagement consultant. So I work specifically on environmental projects. And a lot of that means video calls right now or phone calls, meetings, and uh, a lot of computer work and writing. So all remote for me and all technology-based.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Corey stays at the boat for the uh, you know normal Monday through Friday if we're not out cruising. And then I'll go into work. I'm an oceanographic engineer. So I'll be out working the field, uh, sometimes on research trips, uh, sometimes offshore, sometimes in Puget Sound uh, or in the lab. So I can actually get away from the boat during the actual day, uh, which is kind of nice if you're kind of in a working environment just for now while we're still doing uh, full time jobs.
2: So, in addition to internet, so there's always the other costs like marina costs and such uh, to living on a boat. Do you have an idea, have you tracked at all what kind of costs you accrue on a monthly basis uh, while living in a marina?
3: Yeah, maybe while you're thinking about the numbers, I can list off just a couple of the buckets of what our typically spending is. So we um, we pay mortgage, and we also have a storage unit that we pay for, so that's a monthly cost for us. We decided that while we're living here, it's really helpful to have another space to keep some of our large boat gear that we haven't made space for on the boat quite yet, or
1: more seasonal equipment and toys. We still love to go a lot of biking. Uh, We still love to do some snow skiing and everything like that too. So a lot of skis, just the kind of toys for now that we we kind of keep off hand like someone would in their garage. Yeah,
3: so that's totally a merited cost for us. Um, And then our typical groceries. So I'm trying to think if there's anything beyond those three big buckets. I think actually boat parts would probably be a significant enough one to go into our monthly expenses.
1: Mm-hmm. We do, I mean, we we do all the maintenance on the boat ourselves, but we still have to buy, you know, buy the materials or, or buy the part and everything like that too. So mm-hmm. since we're still more in the uh, refit stage, uh, tail end of it now, but uh, there's still expenses there.
3: Mm-hmm. What would you say our, our ballpark is? Maybe 1500, am I too high, too low?
1: That, that actually seems about right for, for around here because mortgage is, mortgage is fairly expensive in Seattle. Uh, so is a storage unit uh, yeah. and everything like that too. So yeah, it sounds, sounds about right oh, accurate. $1,500, for,
3: yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: which is not bad at all if you compare it to paying rent in a condo. I mean, I pay way more than that and I'm like way in land in Ontario and Canada. So <laughs> yeah, that's it's really interesting uh, for sure. Um, Actually, one thing I did want to talk to you about, because you talked you did, or you said that you did a lot of work on the boat. What were some of the things that you did specifically with the winters in mind?
1: Uh, well, the main project that we did that we were constrained on time was installing a diesel heater in the boat. It's The boat being uh, down south and had to worry about that in California. So when we got here, we we had kind of two systems. There's uh, like a hydronic or an airtronic kind of diesel heat you can do Um, and so we went the kind of air duct route where you have kind of forced air through the boat um, that gets like it's heated um, diesel combustion so we installed that diesel heater and air ducts the boat uh, which is a little bit of a project it was uh, you had to cut some holes in the boat big old hole style like three inch holes through the uh, through the boat to actually run the air ducting and so that was kind of like oh my god we're committed stressful Want to make sure you do them right and don't go through something Uh, on the other side that you don't know what's actually there, (laughs) wiring or who knows what. (laughs) So, we had to cut some holes in the boat and put that in. Um, But that was a real game changer, Um, not only for just living, but extending our cruising season. Uh, When you're at the dock, you can plug in and run a little space heater and that can kind of keep you warm. But if we're cruising around, um, you don't have that same uh, power ability. And so now we actually could be cruising in the winter and stay. You know nice and toasty warm down below and it was fantastic for for drying out your gear for this keeping everything warm so uh installing a diesel heater was uh, a must-have for definitely this area
2: and does it work well sort of uh, throughout the boat i mean it's a fairly sizable at 45 feet so is the um, does it reach basically the whole length of the boat or or whatever it needs to
1: yeah it does it does because we we were out the kind of these air ducts uh throughout the boat so we kind of put them in in the main you know living area the main cabin we we put them in the head so it kind of heats up the shower or in the bathroom. We put them uh, in the, where we sleep in the back. And so it, it keeps the main spaces warm. And then um, and that, and the boats are, are just much smaller than houses, than a normal room or a big space. So it doesn't take very much to keep it, uh, to get it hot.
3: Yeah, I will say that one thing, we opted for a unit that was advertised as undersized for what our boat is. So we bought the one that said that it it could heat up to a 40 foot boat. It's working just fine for our 45 foot boat. So that was, that was worth it to us. And there's one RV berth is the one spot where we don't have a duct and it definitely gets cold. Um, So that's one thing that for us, we still have to mitigate with us with the space heater. And uh, we have fewer guests (laughs) in the winter because it's a little too cold for them. but. Uh, We're really happy with it. So that that made a huge difference.
2: So you now live through a couple of winters on the boats. Um, How's that been like? Any uh, words of warning or wisdom (laughs) for someone who might be getting into that?
1: Yeah, uh, we've had, you know, almost about a foot of snow on the deck. So through the winter and everything like that. And that was was pretty interesting, kind of being snowed in where you look out the hatches of the portholes and they're completely snow covered. Uh, then you're kind of like clearing the snow off your deck.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: one concern with that is if you're at a marina, they'll turn the water off. <laughs> uh, and so you had, to, you had to think about water. And so we were like, oh, okay, we'd be pretty conservative until it melts or, or goes away. So if you know it's going to snow, fill your tanks up. <laughs> we uh, For that time that it did snow, just this last winter, we um, showers is one of the things that really consumes your water. And so we're like, okay, we normally shower on the boat all the time, super comfortable with it. But for that time, we just went up to the uh, use the marine showers because we're like, we want to make sure our, our water stayed uh, so we could actually stay, you know, using our drinking water, brush our teeth. These sort of normal things that you take for granted. So uh, I think having, you know, the winters where you can have freezing and stuff like that. Uh, it's a little bit different.
3: Mm-hmm. And we don't get snow too often here. But the other thing that we do get is a lot of windstorms uh, throughout winter so i think that's actually something that we had to plan for a little bit more than uh the big like snow events it's just constant heavy wind uh particularly this past season so a lot of extra lines or really staying on top of keeping things stowed mm-hmm. above deck chris was much better at getting up in the middle of the night when our lines were a little too tight or we needed to take something down than i am but that was definitely something to prepare for
1: yeah we'd always take a line and uh tie off our boom. So it wasn't swinging as the boats kind of rocking side to side. Cause that'd be a pretty loud noise. And you just want it as quiet as you can when you're sleeping.
3: And then I think the biggest day to day thing throughout the winter is actually dealing with condensation. So <clears throat> when we have the boat all closed up to start breathing or keeping the boat warmer on the inside than it is outside in the wet, damp Pacific Northwest weather, we get so much condensation just on all of the portholes, on all of the hatches, and it creates, it creates problems. So we have a pretty hefty dehumidifier that we rotate throughout the boat during the winter. We move it between our big spaces, like our aft cabin and our aft head, and then up into the main cabin of the boat when we're sleeping. So that makes a big difference, but then we also need to do other things like venting the hatches when we have the diesel heater running because that warm air will push out the condensation and the wet air from the upper hatches. And cleaning out lockers, things like that, because mold will find its way back there if it's getting damp along the whole side. So yeah, that was one thing that we didn't quite expect, but has been a, a challenge that we now know how to, how to deal with.
2: Yeah, that uh, dehumidifier came up uh, with, in another interview that I did with another couple who cruises in that exact same area that you do. So <laughs> it seems to be a must have item <laughs> if you're in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so are you guys planning on spending more winters on the boats or are you just itching to get somewhere
3: south? That's definitely something where we have on our mind. Definitely within the next couple of years, we have some, our big departure plans, but we have our date set and we're we're counting down. So that's on the horizon. Um, just a couple more winters at max. <laughs>
2: yeah, actually another couple, it was uh, uh, Jenny and Mac from Cruising Maya who said that uh, it helps to have when you're living through the winter, it helps to have a date that you're looking forward to so that you mentally you understand that it's not going to last forever. Definitely. <laughs> you have already shared a lot of good tips and uh, sort of uh, given a lot of advice, but uh, you know, as someone who wants to get into this lifestyle, I'll have to. Wrap this all up with a question that is very selfish, obviously, but hopefully will help others as well. But what do you wish you knew before you bought the boat and, and started living on it?
1: I think it's just really smart to be prepared for the amount of time that um, you get to use the boat, but also the amount of time that you need to maintain the boat. There's, It's a really good balance between um, kind of keeping the boat running and, and really keeping everything working to also really enjoying it. That way, when you're out trying to you know relax and enjoy, you're, you're also not trying to, to work on something too. So um, just going in with the mindset that um, there, there will be a lot of work. There is a lot of maintenance just to kind of keep everything running that people don't really realize that, that you have to do. I mean, some people say it's a full-time job. Some people spend all their time just on maintenance, but um, just knowing that you want to find the happy balance between the two will really make the experience a lot better for those going in just just knowing you'll have to do a fair amount of projects and knowing that there there is a balance and, and one can find that balance that works for them
2: yeah no that's that's a really good one and i think the fact that you both had previous sailing experience probably was quite helpful that you were already familiar with a lot of the things that come with boating and sailing in general, I've talked to a few people who've literally started from zero and they've only ever been on board their own sailboat that they bought. So I can imagine that contrast being quite different when you've already been sailing for a long time and having that. So it may not be as much of a kind of a cultural shock to, (laughs) to get into it. Well, Corey and Chris, thank you so much for your time. Just as we wrap up, uh, can you share where our listeners can go follow you in the online world?
3: Yeah, thank you. So people can visit our blog at constellationsailing.com. We share a lot of how-to boat projects and just tips for living aboard and some updates from our travel and cruising adventures. And we're also on Instagram, so that's sv underscore constellation. We share a lot of photos and more of our day-to-day adventures there, so... Yeah, would love for people to check them out.
2: A big thank you to Cory and Chris for sharing their story and experience. Next week, I have a lot of different episodes planned for you. And if you want to learn more about how to find and choose the best blue water sailboat, then you'll want to listen to that one for sure. That will be out next Wednesday. So stay tuned.